Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, I'm a beginner. I'm going to assume you are too, and so let's begin together. Uh, there's a few, uh, four movements, in fact, I want to invite us to sit with this morning on this first Sunday in Epiphany with a story uh, that is no doubt familiar to many of us, Jesus's baptism at the River Jordan by his cousin, John. And that's actually where, or maybe whom I want to begin with is John. That's the first movement. John has been baptizing. Jesus at this point in the story is this emerging Messiah. It's been sort of quiet, but news is beginning to pick up. People are on the lookout. And then there's John, and John has just been doing his job. John has just been in the wilderness, sent by God who told him, go into the wilderness and baptize people. And guess where John has been? He has been in the wilderness, and what do you think he's been doing? baptizing people. John has been faithfully doing his job. And one of the questions I've been sitting with this week is, I was struck by that, is where have you and I simply been called to do our job? To be faithful, maybe a better way of putting it. And I'm not speaking of your job, what you get paid to do, though there certainly are implications for that. But in all the different areas that we are present, all the invitations that have been extended to us as followers of Jesus, for those of us who are, for those places where we have called to be faithful. For me, there's, as all of our lives are complex, there's a multitude of areas. It's where I've been called to be faithful as a follower of Jesus, as a friend of God, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a part of our church community. John is just doing his job. And there's something good and there's something really beautiful about that. Most of John's work, which sets the stage for Jesus, is unknown to us. It's hidden. And yet it would pave the way for the peaceable advancement of God's kingdom through Christ. And the reality is is that you and I live in a world, we live in the backdrop of a world that tells us to look for the next better thing the next better relationship, the next better job, the next better calling, the next better house, the next better car, the next better degree. We live in an overly romanticized story where there's always something better and if you're experiencing something that isn't as good as you hoped, well, that's easy. Just cast it aside and find something new. And this is not a new problem. It's not something unique to Charlottesville. It's not something unique to the U.S., It has existed. It's one of the reasons why since the earliest days of the church, there was an invitation to practice faithfulness and stability. In fact, many of the early monastic communities, the nuns, the monks were invited to make vows of stability. And it's more than just don't, to really commit to live into their life within the monastery. In part, because they recognize that even to get to the monastery, you brought yourself and you were shoulder to shoulder with other human beings. And I don't know if you've been around human beings lately, but we're kind of a mess. 
I remember sitting with my therapist one day and describing someone as crazy. And he looked at me and goes, I mean, you're the one paying for therapy. You can laugh. It was funny. It was funny. So there was an invitation to take a vow of stability, to lean into the mess. It's one of the reasons why we practice coming to the Eucharist table every week. We come with one another, irregardless of whether or not you've been fighting with them or you don't like them or you haven't talked to them in months. We're all invited to a place where we are welcomed and we are fed. But this week, as I was thinking through these practices of faithfulness and stability, I don't think it's enough to go, and here's how to practice stability, because I think And there is a logic to the kingdom. There is a logic to the invitation God gives us that even before we get to things like faithfulness and stability, there is the practice of generosity. Because I think it's hard to be faithful in a space to seek out stability if we are not cultivating spaces to regularly reflect on the many ways in which God is present with us and the gifts and the goodness that that brings. Not to do so in denial of what is hard and difficult, Certainly some of us have experienced those spaces. Give thanks and let's not talk about the hard things. I actually, having been here for two years now, don't think as a church we err on that side. I think we actually err a little bit more on the other side where we are able to name the pain, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. And I think as we enter in this year, there's an invitation for us as a church to hold that and to also give thanks. To name and to give thanks for the places in which God has been generous to us. In fact, Ignatius, who's one of my favorite spiritual writers, in his prayer of examine, which I talk about quite a bit, makes it the first step. Before you look through your day, he says, begin with gratitude, because Ignatius, Ignatian, like all of the saints, have recognized that practicing gratefulness lifts our gaze and shifts our perspective. It invites us, it sort of sneaks in the back door and invites us out of our need to protect, to secure, to promote ourselves. And imagine becoming a kind of person, living out a life where little by little you no longer need to dehumanize your coworker or your family or your friends or yourself to accomplish what it is you think you need to accomplish. Imagine having space and grace for people who are messy and full of mistakes. And it doesn't mean that at times you aren't speaking truth, but there is a fine line between speaking truth and speaking without thinking. Imagine living the kind of life where you're growing at ease with yourself, at ease with God, and at ease with your neighbor. And I just don't think you get there. I I certainly, this has not been my experience, I can't get to any place in that realm without passing through the door of generosity. And here's why. Here's Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12. And I like how Eugene translates it in the message. He says, quote, what I'm trying to do here is get you to relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you, friends, know God. You know how God works. So steep yourself in God reality, in God initiative, in God provision. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You are my dearest friends. And the Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself.
And so where are you called to be faithful? I know the answer's for me. I can't answer that for you. And again, let's not be dishonest here. There was nothing comfortable and easy about the wilderness for John. I don't know that he liked the camel hair suit. Maybe we'll get to new creation and John was like, no, I liked it. He's still wearing it. He's like, these are my digs. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe he liked the taste of locust and honey. I don't know. But there was certainly nothing comfortable, nothing easy about his call. It's a reminder that friendship with God, as much as we love to talk about how beautiful and good it is, and it is, we oftentimes neglect to speak of how dangerous friendship with God is. Because as Brendan already alluded to, inevitably, to be with Jesus. In fact, I've heard uh, a pastor say, if you want to find Jesus, go to those who are suffering and hurting and on the margins because that's where you will find him. I have yet to be in those spaces and be comfortable or it'd be easy because it's messy and it's complex, but that's where God is. Friendship with God is dangerous. Friendship with God involves risk and the need for courage. That's why Jesus, again in Matthew 5, again with Eugene's translation, says in a word, what I'm inviting to you to do is to grow up because you are kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward one another the way that God lives toward you. The second movement this morning is John is not only just baptizing, but the second movement is John sees who Jesus truly is. John and Jesus were cousins, second cousins, in fact. So no doubt, within the Jewish culture, you spent time with family. You spent time with extended family. And so Jesus and John would have grown up with one another. In fact, there are several scholars who have asked questions around whether or not John, being a little bit older, would have even helped Jesus in his own formation and how he was going to think about his ministry and his teaching. And in this passage, though I think uh, John is familiar with Jesus, John chapter one tells us that John was still, like so many of his friends then and now, was progressively beginning to apprehend exactly who it is that Jesus is. And in this passage, it's sort of hard to miss. John standing thigh deep in the river waters, and the heavens open as well. Other gospel accounts tell us other people heard it. There's no question in John's mind in this moment. There will be questions later, which I think is a gift that we know that even John who, right? I think we all imagine if you're standing in the Ravana River and the heavens open up and God goes, you are my beloved. You're like, I will never doubt again. And yet for John, a few chapters later, while sitting in prison, suffering hits. And as suffering does, it invites us to question everything. So John is once again racked with questions. But in this moment today, Matthew chapter three, John has no questions. But I do think there is a invitation here for us, right? The old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. You're so familiar with something or someone that you stop taking it seriously. And I, I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if along the way Jesus was giving hints God was giving hints, and John, just because he was like, my cousin, really? And throughout both Christmas and Epiphany, we see the stories of people like shepherds, of Anna and Simeon, those 
that woman and that man in the temple who recognized Jesus for who he is, the Magi. And I wonder out of this group, did John have the most difficulty? Because he grew up with Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. And I think, as I've been thinking about this, for me and for us, I think it's important as we begin this year once again is to remember that in order to see Jesus for who Jesus really is, you and I have to be the kind of people who regularly take space to reflect. Most of us live reactive lives. We just sort of react to whatever is coming. But we, I don't think we were created, we're not designed to be reactive kind of people. I think it actually even stresses our bodies out on a biological level to live in a constant state of reaction. And so I think in John's own seeing, there's an invitation for us to look, to tend, to keep company really in three places. The first is to keep company with Jesus in the gospels, to ask Jesus, who are you? To ask Holy Spirit to help give us fresh eyes, to see even the God of the gospels the God of Jesus, the God that Jesus is. I think there's an invitation to not only keep company with Jesus in the gospels, but to keep company with Jesus in our own lives. To keep company with the one who loves you, who is engaged with every detail of who you are. And yet in that engagement is at ease with who you are. Not at ease with who you're going to be one day, not at ease now that you're no longer the person from last year, but at ease with you here and now. He isn't wrangling his hands over whether or not you're going to keep your New Year's resolutions, of whether you're going to be more like him than the person next to you. Are you gonna look a little bit more like Jesus this year than last year? I just, can I say something and just, you can send me an email. I don't think Jesus is as concerned and anxious about it as we often are. Otherwise, why would he go, hey, listen, the good work I'm starting, I'll finish it. Don't worry about it. It was the moment yesterday in our house, we were like, hey, girls, if you want to play on the Nintendo Switch, we need to go upstairs and we need to take care of the playroom because it looks like we were robbed, a bomb went off, and then we were robbed again. <laughs> and man, they worked so hard. But about two hours in, I was like, okay, I think there's easily six more hours here. And we walk in and we go, hey, go. Mom and I'll take care of the rest. I think that is probably, and that is not, listen, y'all, I can tell that one story for, for that ever, like, I'm, I always resist making myself the hero of any story in any of my sermons, right? Because for that one story, there's the other stories of me walking in going, clean it up or I'm burning it all. I will put it in a trash bag and we will do a fire out back and we'll invite friends because my friends know. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said something like that, but it's like, okay, we're, right, set aside money for college and therapy for your children. That's kind of our, our two take, right? But I think that may be more in line. Keep company with Jesus in our own lives, but also to keep company with Jesus in the lives of others. Every time Jesus comes, he always brings his friends. The third movement is John baptizes Jesus. 
John baptizes Jesus. Now, when we think about baptism, both in the Christian tradition, but also in the stories of God that we call scripture, a baptism throughout scripture really speaks to two things. And the first is movement. Baptism oftentimes speaks of passing through. And some of the earliest stories of God's pursuit of us, the Hebrew people are always passing through a body of water. They just are like, no, let's go through it. Let's not go around it. Let's go through it. There was the Red Sea, and it was their passing through from slavery to freedom. There was the River Jordan that was their passing through from, from wild places to a promised land. And so I wonder where is God inviting us to be moving, to be growing? Because after all, Jesus is inviting us to become a certain kind of person. Is Jesus anxious? Is he wrangling his hands? No, he's incredibly relaxed. And yet, I believe Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived because he's God. And he knows how creation is designed and how it's intended to be lived out. And listen, if he's not, I was having a conversation with my friend Providence and I mentioned offhand, I was like, if Jesus isn't God, pick whoever you want to, to follow. Because Jesus's way, if he's not God and doesn't know how we are designed as humans to live and how creation is intended to work, there are a dozen people I'd rather follow than Jesus. I'd rather follow the guy at the top of the mountain because it'll give me a big house, a lot of money and a lot of prestige and people who call names of things weird because I wanted them called that way. But if Jesus truly is God and knows how the world is created to work, then maybe there is something to keep in company with him and paying attention. I was talking about Jefferson, by the way, if you're like, Who's a, who lives on a hill? Is it Tom? I don't think Tom lives on a hill. Bruno's, do y'all live on a hill? No, they don't. Baptism speaks to movement. The second thing is baptism speaks to life change. When the church was trying to decide what word to use for baptism in the scriptures, there were two they were going with. Babto, which means to dip. Just a little, you know, a little dippity dip. But the one they went with was baptizo, which actually means pickling. Pickling. God wants to change us and wants the change and the transformation if we're willing to say yes to happen all the way down in our bones, to soak, to steep in the life of God. A cucumber is still a cucumber. You might call it something different, but its fundamental makeup has changed. Its taste has changed. And I think as we steep ourselves in the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we begin to take on the family resemblance. We begin to believe what Jesus believed, to act as Jesus act instinctually, not just with our wills. Which brings us to our fourth movement, which is that the heavens opened up. Jesus is in the waters and it says that the heavens are open to him. I don't think it was that the, you know, the sky split open. That's oftentimes the picture I think even behind me, the sky splits open and the dove falls as I've told our students and our children a number of times, heaven is not a place way off far, somewhere beyond Pluto. The heaven is all around us, a, a different realm, a different reality that's breaking in. And I think that the actions of God in this moment, I think reveal to us two things that God desires. And the first is to fill us with the work and the word and the power of Holy Spirit. 
Again, you talk about Holy Spirit, all of us have a little bit of a different take. Maybe Holy Spirit is the weird relative. You know, you have to invite to Thanksgiving and you just hope you get out of there without talking to them. No one? You all have one. And if you don't, it might be you. I'm just saying, it's just that. Maybe Holy Spirit to you is warm, fuzzy emotions. Oh, that was, that was Holy Spirit. Nope, sweater and coffee. Or maybe Holy Spirit is just intended to make you feel really bad about what it is that you do. But when Jesus speaks of Holy Spirit, he speaks of Holy Spirit as the member of the Godhead given to us in order to protect us and to be the very presence and life of God with us. In John 14, Jesus describes Holy Spirit as another. He uses the word another, which means of the same kind. And I've said this before, what Jesus is saying is if you like me, you're really gonna like Holy Spirit. So the first thing is that God desires to fill us with the work and the word and the power of Holy Spirit, but two, God desires for us to hear our name. And by name, what I don't mean is Todd, Andrea, Ryan, Evan, Chris. But I mean a name that goes deeper than all of those names of anything that we could take on, of a reality and a name that goes beyond gender, it goes beyond Enneagram type or Myers-Briggs. And it is that you, friend, are beloved. Not that you are beloved in the sense that it's an action that God does towards you, though it certainly is that, but that is your most fundamental identity, that you are the beloved daughter, the beloved son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you in any way, like me, feel guilty of how often you need to be reminded of that, because I'm like, great, beloved of God, awesome. And then my kid acts a fool in the grocery store and I go, I don't know. Or I tell them I'm gonna burn your playroom. I don't walk away from that going, yeah, God's beloved said that. I find myself going, am I? If you can feel guilty about that, then in a few weeks when we look at the Mount of Transfiguration and that story, we're reminded that Jesus and his humanity needed to be reminded too. Which means, I would argue, that Christ meets us in our search for our identity as one who knows that need. That Jesus enters into the baptism waters with all those who are on a path away from union with God. And when he, he needs to know, he receives it, not from himself. You don't see Jesus in the waters going, I'm the beloved, I'm the beloved, I'm the beloved, I'm the beloved. John, did you know I'm the beloved? That's how you can actually refer to me now. But where does his sense of belovedness, of identity come? It comes from outside of him. An essential part of Jesus's ministry was to help other people know they were the beloved of God. And when he speaks of Holy Spirit, he uses the word another, which means of the same what? Kind. And so no wonder that Paul will pick this theme up in Romans 8, where he says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. And when we cry, Abba, Father, 
It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The starting place of Jesus' life was that he was beloved. And so friends, this year, this day, this week, where might God be inviting you to create space to hear? To really listen and to really hear. One of the themes you, show, you see show up, it showed up in our Isaiah reading this morning, in places like Ezekiel 36, of God's longing to do a new thing where people have lost hope. And maybe for some of us, the starting place is to consent and to invite God in who deeply desires to do a work in the deepest parts of us, works of healing, works of welcome, works of restoration, works of growth. God wants to do a work in the deepest parts of us, our innermost being where nothing can get to but God, God's self. The question is, will we consent? Like Mary, will we consent to what God wants to grow in us in the hidden places? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.